Hello and welcome to Casual Krakoa. I'm Gabe Busing, founder and editor-in-chief of ComicBookHerald.com. You are joining a live, live edition. We're going to review all the X-Men comics that came out today. That includes Inferno number 2, Wolverine number 17, Marauders number 25, and Sword number 9. A good big week of X-Men comics here in the reign of X in this very fun time for X-Men. The big uh, issue, of course, being the event comic Inferno number 2, written by Jonathan Hickman, art by Stefano Caselli, colors by David Curiel, letters by Joe Sabino. I will have a proper Crack and Krakoa video breaking down Inferno number 2 going live later this evening. But for those of you that are able to join live today, we can talk any and all comics. Get your questions in here in the chat. The Super Chat is available for those of you who want to get your question prioritized and also want to simultaneously support Comic Book Herald Endeavors. Thank you so much to those of you who do. To the rest of you, thank you for joining live or listening later. That's an option too. These are going up now as uh, live streams, which we're doing currently. This will be available via all the X-Men video playlists that you can watch later, or I will also be uploading the audio here uh, to the podcast, if you check out the Comic Book Herald podcast. So you can find that via comicbookherald.com. You can Google Comic Book Herald in your podcast player of choice. You will find it there as well. You can hear the conversation a whole bunch of ways. But thank you, thank you to everybody that's pouring in here live. Love to see it. Get your questions in in the chat if you have them. Otherwise, have a fun conversation while I chat here. Uh, be polite. Be respectful. That's all I ask. And, uh, and we'll have a good time talking X-Men comics. Okay, so... Again, I'm gonna do, I'm gonna do a full Inferno number two review. I've got a lot to say <laughs> about it, as you might expect. Although maybe not as much as I anticipated, honestly. Um, it's not as big and massive, right, as as a second issue as it could have been, or maybe as I hoped. Um, but it's, but again, like I said, it's a very, very good week of X Men comics. Uh, my my very, very broad reviews. Inferno number two, good. Sword number nine, great. Marauders number 25. Fine. Fine. It's like it's 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 chewing gum at this point, right? Marauders. Very disposable, but fine. And Wolverine number 17. If you're into Ben Percy's writing and you're into the run that he's been doing across Wolverine and X-Force, you're probably gonna continue to enjoy this. Um, if you're not, then you you should have checked out a while ago. Nothing has changed. Uh, I am enjoying sort of the spy and and mystery elements. Of the Percy run, you know, I think it's not it's not as big picture stuff, but it is grounded and it is it's a good fit for a Wolverine comic set in this Krakoa era, right? So I'm I'm enjoying the landscape there, um, although it's not certainly not my favorite series. All right, let's dig in. Let let's start. I think probably with the big one. We'll start with Inferno number two. I'm not going to talk about it in as much detail as as you might expect because again, I I want to save some commentary for the full Crack and Krakow, which I recommend everybody check out. But again, you're all here live, so let's talk about it. Uh, and then I probably want to spend the second most time talking about S.W.O.R.D. because I continue to be delightfully surprised that in back-to-back -back months now, we had an Inferno issue released, we had a S.W.O.R.D. issue released the same day. I had a better time reading S.W.O.R.D. both times. I did not anticipate that. I'm a huge Jonathan Hickman fan. Um, I, I am very invested in what Inferno was doing. I'm not knocking it necessarily, but I continue to be delightfully in love and, and kind of surprised by what S.W.O.R.D. is doing. I just think Al Ewing is absolutely killing it. That book takes me to places and takes me in directions that I do not anticipate to a greater degree than pretty much 
anything in the Krakoa era right now, and I don't want to see Sword ever end. I'm just I'm loving loving what's going on there. Um, so again, we'll talk we'll talk uh, about that you know amazing run and that amazing issue in a bit more detail, including you know the big the big reveal at the end. Um, so there will be spoilers. Okay, there will be spoilers um, about what happened in these issues. If you haven't read the comics yet and you don't want to know what happens, uh, I would recommend go read them and then come back to this again. It'll be available once we're done here on the live stream, but we are absolutely going to talk about what happens. Okay, so you have been warned. So, all right, let's get into it. I'm going to scan the questions as I go, try to pull in some of the good ones. Um, I, I saw a really good one up front that actually I'll dig right into first. And uh, this was before we got going. Question was, hey, Dave, so far we've seen the payoff to most characters in the teasers for this event. What is the role Psylocke might play in this? Bishop is making his war college. That'll backfire for sure. Uh, yeah, so the teasers to Inferno were basically like, we can't trust our leaders. We can't trust our friends. Um, we can't trust our enemies, yada, yada, right? It's, it's all about, uh, you know, every, everything's falling apart. We can't trust. There's all these secrets. And, and we know that to be true with Professor X and Magneto and Moira and everything they've been planning. Obviously, Mystique, Destiny, Emma Frost, they all have big plans as well. Um, and then probably the, the biggest left field turn was Psylocke, Conan, not Betsy Braddock. Okay, right? She's Captain Britain now. Um, we have uh, Bishop and then Colossus were in that teaser. Now, the big reveal at the end of Inferno number two today, and again, like I said, spoilers, jumping right to the last page first, the big reveal at the end of Inferno is that uh, Professor X and Magneto in kind of a desperation play to get somebody on the Quiet Council that they know they can trust, that they know they will have the vote for, because it's become this whole Supreme Court, uh, we need to get the right votes dynamic, here where like there's this power struggle of, of who controls the council now they bring in colossus okay and we know as readers invested in every issue in this x-men universe that in the ben percy written and often josh kassara drawn x-force colossus is compromised okay so this seeming ally this longtime x-man he is currently under the influence we don't know exactly to what degree but he is currently under the influence of his brother, Mikhail Rasputin, the chronicler, this individual with a seemingly a mutant ability to like write things that then become true. Um, and, and just in general, like the anti-Krakoa nation state of Russia, right? So uh, last we saw was X-Force number 24, which came out two weeks ago now. Um, last we saw Colossus murdered his girlfriend, uh, also a mutant on Krakoa, and then was approached by Professor X. That potentially, if this is integrated as as directly as it is implied here, um, that potentially could be Professor X coming to Colossus' little cottage there to be like, hey, we're going to invite you to the council, feel them out, you know, do we have your vote kind of thing. It could be that conversation. Um, if it's not, it's really going to uh, make it stand out how discordant <laughs> the line has gotten. Um, but it seems like those things should play together. Okay, uh, because, you know, Colossus shows up and there's this panel, the very last panel of the book of, of issue number two is, you know, someone we can trust. And it's clearly played ominously, right? It's clearly, okay, we actually can't trust Colossus. And really what it does is it sells yet again. It's just building in on itself and selling every decision Moira, Professor X, Magneto make throughout Inferno and in, in much of the build to this point throughout the dawn and the reign of X has been backfired <laughs> tremendously through all their careful scheming through all their plotting and planning they continue to see things 
fall apart and everything's going to come crashing down on top of them. I mean, I've said this a bunch in the build to this, but Inferno is a, it's the story of Professor X and Magneto falling, right? It is the fall of the mutants, specifically Professor X and Magneto. They are no longer going to be the rulers. They are no longer going to be in charge when all is said and done here. I don't think that is it's not even really a prediction at this point because in Inferno number one, you know, the first thing we see is uh, Emma Frost standing over Professor X and Magneto who have been resurrected or down on their knees and are clearly, clearly not the ones driving the ship anymore. Okay, so that that's coming, that's happening. I think it basically already happened here and we see that in Inferno as the progression essentially of, okay, now they don't even control the Quiet Council anymore. And that's most of what this issue is, is it's Hickman doing his, what I'm, I'm going to call in the Kraken Krakow video, basically now his his patented uh, rewind plotting, where he rewinds the video, explains how something we saw previously actually happened, you know, and then basically what in this case is just telling us how Mystique got Destiny resurrected, because that was the big reveal at the end of Inferno number one. Um, and then it, you know, it explains... Uh, basically how Mystique secured the votes. Uh, I, w I was having visions, that whole sequence of um, Kendall Roy in the first season of Succession, secure, trying to secure votes to get his father ousted as as CEO of, of Royco. Um, pick and choose your, your variety there, you know, like whatever, whatever brings to mind for you. But it's Mystique going to all the players on the Quiet Council and basically being like, what do I need to bribe you with? What do I need to get you um, in order to secure your vote? What do I need to tell you in order to get you on my side? And she's successful, ultimately. Um, she's successful. Mystique and Destiny now have, you know, some some modicum of control um, over the Quiet Council and the direction of Krakoa moving forward, at least so far as Krakoa continues to function with a Quiet Council and isn't destroyed or or drastically upturned or overturned by the threat of Orcus, of Nimrods, and potentially, potentially, whatever it is Moira's actually planning. I will say, going through half of this event and not engaging with the Destiny Diaries, which we saw teased at the end of X-Men number 20, not engaging with, um, well, anything Phalanx-related, right? Anything super future plot-wise. Um, I'm, I'm a little surprised we've made it this far and haven't really engaged with a lot of the really big ideas. You know, Inferno is very grounded. It is very grounded in Krakoan politics, in the Krakoan nation-state, you know? And, and I think one of the huge appeals of House and Powers, which obviously is the gold standard that this era will forever be trying to get back to and failing. It will not do it. But forever trying to get back to is um, one of the, you know, the true potential there is like the future, the long-term planning, right? The sci-fi of it all. That's not really here, right? So this is this is great, I think, if you're super invested in the Krakoan nation state, which is definitely... Um, <laughs> Which is definitely where a lot of people are and where the line is at. I'm seeing here in the comments uh, succession spoilers too. I, I promise I did not 
spoil anything succession related. <laughs> I just referenced a thing that happened in the first season, which was several years ago. Uh, I don't even think I said what the outcome was. All right. <laughs> so no, no future succession spoilers, I promise. Um, okay, so but Inferno number two, again, I'm going to do a full, full dig on it. Uh, the question was, though, the question was, what is the role Psylocke might play in this? Okay, we don't really have a great sense of like, why can't we trust Psylocke specifically with this event? Well, what we know about where Psylocke's at right now is in the first issue, we do see Psylocke nominated to, um, what was it, War Captain status, you know, alongside Magic and where Cyclops has been and Bishop, right? And, and so we see, okay, Psylocke's going to take a more important role. We know that right now, post-Hellions, what happened in, with Psylocke in the book Hellions, written by Zip Wells, which is one of my absolute favorites, definitely recommend if you're invested in the Hickman of it all, like check out Hellions, it's up there with Sword for me. Um, Psylocke has an extreme vendetta against Mr. Sinister right now, quiet council member, you know? Um, Mr. Sinister basically manipulated her, blackmailed her by using the DNA code for her daughter. Um, and then that was recently destroyed, okay, by by Havoc, although that's that's losing some of the complexity. <laughs> it's putting it all on Alex Summer's shoulders, which he probably is doing too. Um, but but so Psylocke has recently lost her daughter. Um, it's a little more complex than that. And it is very much in part Mr. Sinister's fault. Uh, so she's got it out for at least one quiet council member. Um, beyond that, I don't really know exactly where Psylocke's at or really, frankly, any of the Hellions who are going through a hell of a time right now. Like they're, they're having a difficult time. So what is Psylocke's role going to be? Um, I mean, I, I was viewing it as, okay, she'll definitely side with, let's see some new power dynamics. Let's see new faces on the council or the dismantling of a council entirely. Like what about a different ruling structure? I could see Psylocke potentially on the side of that. Um, does that mean she's a clear ally for Mystique and Destiny? Like, I don't, I don't know that this is going to break into Krakoan teams quite to that degree, although it, it, she, I, I suspect that she would, right? There's, there's no love lost here necessarily with Psylocke and like Professor X, Magneto, and Mr. Sinister, although then you have to consider, okay, but where does Sinister's loyalty lie to himself? And he's not on team Professor X and Magneto either, unless they can give him what he wants. And as they lose power, they're going to increasingly not be able to do that. Um, so, it, like, I don't... If, if she just wants revenge on Sinister, I mean, I don't I don't know exactly what that gets us in Inferno. Sinister right now is very... There's an interesting thing in Inferno number two, because Mystique's doing her shape-shifting thing and fooling everyone by doing it. She's pretending to be Magneto. She's pretending to be Professor X. She's getting all the pieces in place in order to resurrect Destiny, which she does. And I love that she resurrects Destiny the young style, right? She resurrects Destiny in a younger body in the younger version from when they first met, which is her gift to her, as she says, instead of putting her in a, obviously, a, a more debilitated form. Um, at one point, Mara says something to the effect of, like, you know, who who knows what they could be doing? And it's like they're, they're reunited lovers who haven't seen each other in years. And one of them just came back in a super, um, you know, like fit young body. I think we know what they're doing. Moira. I can guess. I can guess personally what they might want to be making up for with all that time lost. Um, but the point being, like, 
Mystique tricks everyone into doing this, but the one person she doesn't really trick is Mr. Sinister. Like, Sinister sees through her pretty much immediately. Um, it's right there in the dialogue. He references it later. He clearly knew it was Mystique asking for Destiny's DNA. Uh, Sinister, I, I don't think he's as cavalier and as casual about, like, playing along as has been implied, right? So, like, I don't see Sinister being the type of character who's going to be like, oh, sure, Mystique, here's your DNA, and then not do anything with that or not make any plans based on that, right? So I think there's still some Sinister secrets to come. I think there's a lot of potential for, okay, what is Sinister's endgame in all this? What is his scheme in all of this? Because he knows a lot of what's going on here. Um, he knows a lot more than he's letting on to. I think there's a lot to be done there. Uh, Psylocke could be the one who sort of prevents that from happening at this point. Although, honestly, I'm kind of rooting, I'm kind of rooting for Sinister. Like, I kind of want to see what it is he's going to do or how he's going to sabotage everything. Uh, so I guess in that, in that sense, I'm kind of rooting against Psylocke. So that was a, a good question. I think, um, you know, in a roundabout way, it led to a lot of coverage of what is going on in the issue and what a lot of the players are doing uh, just by virtue of all these interpersonal dynamics and relationships that are, that are at play here. I think that is a big part of what makes Inferno right now, specifically in the Krakoa era, so intriguing. Like, I think that's what makes it so fun where you don't necessarily have to, you know, as much as I would enjoy it, you don't have to get into the sci-fi powers of 10 part of it because we have all these relationships and all this Krakoan politicking that needs to be discussed, you know, like, like the Magneto and Professor X relationship, their relationship to Moira, Moira to Destiny and Mystique, Destiny and Mystique to Emma Frost, right? And it goes on and on and on. All these things, all this history is compounding and building. And, you know, one thing that was, we look at House and Powers, and it kind of narratively happened a little bit easily that everyone was on the same page. And that was a part of the a part of the magic of that event was how it sold that, right? How it made that believable. You didn't really have to sit and question, oh, would Apocalypse really join with them? You know, would Mystique really be feeling this? It kind of didn't matter, right? There was kind of this magic. There was this aura. There was this momentum about the whole thing where it just, you didn't have to worry about it. But now as we move further down the line and you see the cracks and you see the secrets and you see all the pettiness, you're, you're kind of reminded, or I'm kind of reminded here that like, yeah, a lot of these people don't like each other and they don't like working together and they have very different visions for what this island should be. And that's going to manifest in problems <laughs> for a lot of them, especially, especially as I've said up front, Professor X and Magneto and Moira, because their plans are the most um, locked in right? Th their plans are the most inflexible, actually, is probably the best way to say it, because Moira has a vision. She has a vision for what needs to happen, and anything that gets in the way of that, like, it's just, it, it just keeps them from uh, long-term mutant survival, you know? And that's one of the things that I'm very interested in with Inferno, um, and obviously have been in this entire era and the whole Hickman vision, but one thing that has, I suppose, surprised me, Moira does not seem as on top of it as I imagine she might. Uh, throughout the dawn and the rain, we saw Professor X and Magneto making mistakes and and cracks forming, right? And that was a little easier to swallow for me because they were, there are these two ideologues, these great men who envision themselves as sort of always right and as the right rulers for mutant kind, and they kind of always have. And we see very early in House and Powers, they go to Sinister against Moira's wishes, right? So we've seen them behave 
you know, against what Moira, the one who actually has the knowledge, would have recommended. But what we're seeing in Inferno now is like Moira doesn't have control of the situation either, <laughs> you know, or at least that's the implication halfway through the event. Like Destiny comes back. Like, here's the thing. If Destiny is such a non-starter for Moira, um, she could have taken action a lot sooner. She could have taken personal action. She didn't have to outsource that. You know what I mean? So there's an, it's hard for me to get a read right now. Like, is this her faking everyone out? Like, is this a fake out by Moira Axe? Or is this um, just Hickman's attempt to say, hey, it's really hard to control how an entire life plays out. Um, you can control certain elements, but you can't control everything. I mean, this, you know, and this is one of the big things from, uh, you know, the novel, uh, definitely, like, clearly a source of inspiration here, um, which is, you know, the first 15 lives of Harry August, which I, I recommend people read. It's great. It's, it's the same or very similar premise as Moira's mutant ability, but not, you know, not mutants. Um, and one of the one of the key tenets there in sort of what happens when you relive these lifelines, when your mutant ability is resurrection, is like, well, yeah, you, okay, you relive it, you have all your knowledge, but you can't just like change world events. You can't just like change global events without tremendous reach and power and wealth, and you have to accumulate those things. Just because you know what's going to happen doesn't mean you can stop everything from happening. You know, and that's been one of the interesting things about the Meyer experiment is like, how do you actually play that out? In story, um, I guess the question I have, and I don't think we've got a satisfactory answer yet, is like, what has Myra been controlling? You know, like she helps clearly in the build to Krakoa. In some way, this is part of the plan with Professor X and Magneto, the build to get a mutant nation to the point of Krakoa. Okay, she helped there. What's she doing after that? She's sitting and reading Destiny's diaries, planning for something. We don't know what, um, but she's not like there's no hands-on anything that we've seen, that we've seen. So I'm really hoping in issue three and four, we'll see some more of that. Um, this was a, you know, if if the split is going to be first issues Moira, second issues Destiny and Mystique, third issue Nimrod's coming crashing in, and then the fourth is everything burns, right? And there's going to be some sort of metamorphosis and change that leads to a new vision for 2022 in the X-Men line. Somewhere in there, I hope we fit in and, and I fully expect to get the answer as to, like, what is Moira's plan? What is she so scared of everyone finding out? Like, I, I think if we didn't get that answer in Inferno, it would be infuriating. <laughs> I, would, I would put the X-Men comics down for a minute. I fully expect to get that answer. The question is, will we also get more thorough backstory as to what Moira's actually been doing? I think it's crucial. I think it's been missing. I think the X-Men comics run that Hickman wrote was a great vehicle for that. It was cho it was not chosen to be a part of it. Um, so what do we get to see now? Because there's it's like all potential. It's pure potential, and it's a pure open slate, which is, you know, it's thrilling, but only if we get it, only if we see it. Okay. Getting any good questions, if you got them, I will try to tackle what I can. Um, you know, I think as far as Inferno goes, like I am... Very excited about the next couple of issues. I think it's going to be great. Um, one thing I was not anticipating, I think, with this this event is how thoroughly on the side of Mystique and Destiny I would be um, to the point where I'm like, I'm looking now and I'm like, okay, it seems like they're right. It's, it seems like, you know, bit clearly have to root for them. Um, 
it's to the point where I'm like, what if they were right in Days of Future Past? Like in Uncanny X-Men 141 of 142, that's the the first real big story for Mystique and Destinies. They come in with a reformed Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, and they are trying to assassinate, at the time, Senator Robert Kelly. Um, and the X-Men, in a Days of Future Past timeline, they send back Kate Pride to prevent that, because they're like, that's where everything went wrong. But here's what I'm questioning, because Mystique and Destiny seems so right in this moment. I'm like, what if they were right in Days of Future Past, and actually Destiny, the precog, would have brought about a better timeline had they let Future Past carry out? <laughs> like, like, that's how compelling and convincing their characters have been. Although I guess a lot of that admittedly, is less about what they're saying they're going to do, because they're not necessarily saying much very specific, um, but it's more about Professor X and Magneto, and and I guess Mara at this point, and their cold, cold pragmatism, and how uh, morally bankrupt that can continue to feel, um, especially in the absence of the specifics of why. Right. Like, I, I think potentially you can sell a lot of cold pragmatism if you have a why. Right. That's kind of what Beast is doing. Like, that's the those are the mental gymnastics Beast is playing right now where he's saying, OK, I have to genocide Terra Verde in the interest of Krakoan pharmaceutical protections. I'm not saying that's a good answer. It's not. But at least we know why Beast is doing it with Myra and Professor X and Magneto. We actually don't know why. Um, and, and again, that's the answer that has to be here in order to understand, like, okay, but truly, truly why could Destiny not come back? Why, when Destiny does come back, is Moira's first question, Magneto, can you squeeze the helmet on her head until she's dead? That's Moira's first question. Her reaction is hate and rage and murder. She cannot have Destiny here, which again, to me, is like, if that's really how you feel... Why didn't you do something? Why didn't you do something? I'm, I'm a little baffled on that plot point, I gotta say. Um, so, all right. What uh, what major Inferno questions do we have? Um, if anything, get them in now. Again, there's, there's uh, you know, Super Chat available if you want to get something prioritized. Um, I think I covered, like, a lot of what I'm going to talk about in the Kraken Krakoa vid. I'm going to go deeper in the, uh, the actual deep dive video on... A couple things that I think you'll find interesting. Uh, the first is uh, what's the box? What's in the box? <laughs> right? With Mystique giving to Emma. We're going to talk about that. Uh, I'm going to talk about a uh, I'm going to talk about the Omega Sentinel in ways I did not expect to be. Gotta say, Karima Shapinder uh, did not expect to be having a long conversation about that character. Uh, she clearly has a bigger role to play here with Nimrod and what's going on with Orcus. I found that very interesting. Um, and then what else, what else I'm going to talk uh, a bit about, oh, the data pages, uh, where we have Krakoa observing a conversation between destiny and mystique. I'm going to talk in, in a bit more detail there about, you know, what's going on and in some specifics with the data page language. Um, I'll just say it here. If you notice, you know, they always do the little. I don't know what you call it, the, between the, the codex here um, about where the data page is coming from. And the first data page in the Krakoa network reads Great Tree. The second one reads Great Machine, or M-A-C-H-N. Uh, the implication to me that I got from that was this is a techno-organic Krakoa, right? Part tree, part machine, a hybrid of sorts. 
Um, it could be, it could be a broader use. You know, Jonathan Hickman is a writer who really likes to talk about machines. You have the night machine back in shield. You have, um, you know, Iron Man is the master of machines through the Illuminati. Uh, so it could be sort of a broader use kind of referencing like the interconnectedness of things, this built network. Uh, but I definitely read that as part tree, part machine kind of confirming again, a thing that is teased in, in re-referenced in Inferno number one, which is like, oh yeah, Krakoa's been, I don't know if infected is the right word, but inhabited in part by Warlock and the techno-organic virus. And like, why would we have teased that in the first issue if we're not going to do anything with it? You know, that's that's got to come back. It doesn't come back in any stronger way in the second issue, but I think that little tease there was our, our cue that like, okay, yeah, that's going to play a role. Um, I think we're going to see a lot more from Krakoa the island, the sentient island <laughs> that we forget is sentient sometimes in uh, the third and fourth issues. I mean, I think Nimrod, I don't know if Nimrod's specifically going to invade Krakoa, but clearly, you know, the Krakoan for the next issue reads Nimrod and there's going to be a showdown. Um, I think we're going to get a lot more from Krakoa in terms of what is actually happening. What is the island actually thinking? And that could lead to a lot of turnover too for like what X-Men comics can look like after this event, right? Any changes that actually happen to the island, okay? So uh, there's a lot of cool stuff to come. You know, I, I think it's it's a good event. It's gonna, it's not it's not the banger that House and Powers was, um, but that expectation is is not a good one. <laughs> it's set up for failure. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's good stuff. Like it's enjoyable. It keeps the X-Men line. Um, it keeps that center very clear. You know, it keeps it clear like what the center of the universe should be. And that helps everything else. Um, it even gives like an issue like Sword weight today. Like Sword is not a direct tie-in, but the build to there being a mole within Sword, which has been happening for a while, and there being cracks in the fissure there, and Abigail Brand having secrets and plans of her own, like tonally, thematically, that plays with Inferno, right? It's not literal Inferno plot points, but all of that thinking, all of that, all of that plot fits in with what's going on in Inferno. So just having its presence in the middle of the line really, I think, kind of amplifies what's moving around it. I'm seeing in the comment here, more Cypher, please. Like, yes, absolutely. I mean, Cypher's clearly a major player um, in, in this event. I think needs uh, a stronger presence, and I, I hopefully will get it because, you know, Cypher has a again, like a, a moment in the first issue. And I don't, you, you don't do that unless you have something else for that character to be doing. At least I don't anticipate. Um, all right. So let's, let's talk sword real quickly. Um, while we're, while we're here. So sword number nine played out today. Like I said, I was really, really delighted by this issue. Um, we lost a lot of good Shi'ar Imperial Guard today. So pour, pour one out for the Shi'ar Imperial Guard. You know, I was watching it and thinking kind of how, um, how much more traumatic it is when you have Imperial Guard getting taken out by the Lethal Legion, another classic Al Ewing continuity poll, which I love, um, taken out by the Lethal Legion, but like next to mutants, right? And like mutants, it's like, oh, okay, they're down, they'll get resurrected. But then you see it happen like next to them with the Imperial Guard and it's like, oh, they don't have that. <laughs> they don't have the convenient, um, you know, no death of, of resurrection. Uh, so, so pour one out. For our friends in the Shi'ar Imperial Guard, that that felt to me like a clear, hey, that Shi'ar Imperial Guard miniseries that we talked about, that's not happening. <laughs> that's definitely not happening anymore. Um, Al Ewing continues to play with Henry Peter Gyrick as the world's worst, 
and but a very compelling villain, a very compelling diplomat, uh, now the head of Alpha Flight. I appreciate that Alpha Flight is finally revealed in all of its base villainy that has been there from Jump back in 1984. I have always said Alpha Flight are the worst and the worst of the villains, and uh, all but confirmed here both with Henry Peter Gyrick at the helm and with Jimmy James Hudson, a.k.a. Guardian, joining Orcus of his own free will, it would seem. Um, need, need a little more. Need a little more from, from Hudson here um, in terms of, like, why? <laughs> He's totally swayed by, hey, they conquered Mars, and, and, and that bothers him. Like, I could use a little more internal monologue on that one. Uh, but it makes, again, Alpha Flight is a good threat here. Gyrek at the head of it, especially because of the history that he as a character has with Abigail Brand. They do not get along, as should not be surprising. Um, Abigail Brand's plotting in S.W.O.R.D. continues to be really fascinating to me. Brand's playing a long game that uh, Moira, Professor X, and Magneto are not. And maybe all of mutant kind is not, right? Brand's interests are different than what a lot of mutants and what a lot of Krakoa is thinking of, right? Like, I think Emma and and Abigail are on similar wavelengths in terms of looking out for their own best interests and having their own plans and keeping wheels spinning. But Brand does that on a whole nother level. Um, again, Nick Fury of Space is not a super inaccurate idea, or at least like the platonic ideal of Nick Fury actually being good at his job. That's Abigail Brand in space. Um, it's got interesting something that she's planning, which I find fascinating. Um, she clearly was not accounting for... Uh, old man Cable coming back and being a thorn in her side. I really like Al Ewing playing with that detail and saying, okay, we had young teen Cable, but what kind of difference does it make to now have this really wizened old vet who's going to see through a lot of Brand's BS? You know, she has to be more careful, potentially. Um, so that's that's a really interesting dynamic, too. Like, I had almost forgotten that old man Cable was like a part of S.W.O.R.D. still, um, but I, I love that he is. And then the big reveal at the end of S.W.O.R.D. here, uh, aside from the fact that Storm continues to be the coolest, is uh, WizKid seemingly, seemingly the mole reporting in to Henry Peter Gyrick. This feels like a red herring to me. I, I'd, I'd be surprised if WizKid isn't conning them um, or doing it at Brand's behest, honestly. I, I think it seems too easy otherwise. Like And plus, like Ewing and the S.W.O.R.D. team, like they've done a lot of work to make WizKid really cool and really fun in this era. And I think inverting that and making them, um, you know, a, a saboteur working against mutant kind uh, would, would undo a lot of that work, which doesn't mean it can't be done. Um, but I kind of feel like it's red herring. I, I'm, I'm not buying necessarily uh, a good old WizKid as an actual saboteur. I, I feel like they're playing Henry Peter Geyer. Because like, here's the thing, like, like, if Gyrick wins, like, if Gyrick gets a one-up on S.W.O.R.D. in any meaningful capacity, like, that's a disappointing story. Like, the story is he thinks he's winning, and he thinks he's got it, and then the rug gets pulled out from under him, and we make him look like a fool yet again. Like, that that's what I want to see here. Is it time-tested and, and, and somewhat um, expected? Of course, but... Like that, that's how this works. That's how that dynamic plays out. So I love Sword. I love everything that's going on here. Um, I, I would definitely love to see Valeria Shidi back on the book, but such is life. Um, it's it's awesome. If you're not reading Sword, I highly recommend it. Uh, it is a great, great X-Men book. It is um, a good 
uh, integrated companion piece to Al Ewing's work on Guardians of the Galaxy. You know, he continues to get to do really cool Marvel Cosmic stuff. And it's it's super fun as a result. Um, it's, again, it's not like a literal tie-in to what's going on in Inferno, but thematically and tonally, it is interconnected in ways that um, are really smart and, and really kind of add to the whole flavor of what's going on in the X-Men line in the Reign of X, which is kind of the best you can ask for. Speaking of the best you can ask for, um, Marauders number 25 was not that. <laughs> I've been super down on Marauders uh, since, like, really since, like, Kate's resurrection, I guess, was, like, the last compelling mystery. Um, Duggan and team, like, they're just having fun. They're just having a good time. Like I said at the front, it's chewing gum comics. Um, it is, I like some of these players. There's a really funny moment in this between Pyro, Pyro and Kate Pride. Um, this whole issue is, you know, basically, basically they did a, a Star Wars fanfic issue last issue and the whole team got thrown out of an airlock and uh, this is them trying to survive and, and get back at the you know the bounty hunter who spited them um it happens it is it is generally meaningless uh it can be a fun time with these characters if you like these characters in this team i am very excited about steve orlando taking over the book it needs a creative infusion it needs new life um i hope it can be given a direction that i'm excited about again because the characters and the concept continue to be very fun um, but the execution at this point is just like total, uh, total chewing up. Like I said, um, Wolverine number seventeen. You know, I kind of, I'm kind of similarly, um, not the. I, I'm more enthusiastic about Wolverine, definitely than than I am about Marauders. I think again, like the Percy saga, is going to be this huge omnibus of interconnected Wolverine and X Force. When all is said and done, um, we're moving past the Solomark. We're moving past. Wolverine dealing with, you know, his, his Araco arch nemesis. And we're now going back into, uh, CIA proceedings. Wolverine's got a contact in the CIA. Um, he's interacting with the Loris of the X desk and there's all sorts of spy political intrigue type stuff going on. Um, Wolverine's barely in this comic, uh, aside from like hanging out at karaoke night at the green lagoon, doing some stuff with Maverick. Um, again, if you're invested in the Percy verse, this will continue to work for you. If you haven't been like, it's nothing has changed. It's not going to swing. Um, I'm reading and like, I'm pretty, I'm pretty middle of the road on the Percy verse. I got to say like his X-Force and his Wolverine, they always read fine to me. Um, they're meat and potatoes comics, you know, like they're not doing stellar stuff. Um, I don't love them, but I am interested and I think they fit in what's going on in the universe. Um, I, I've been saying this a bunch, but like, you know, Ben Percy with, with Josh Kassar, and I, I know there's other creators involved, um, they're going to be doing X Lives and X Deaths of Wolverine at the start of 2022. It's going to be this big event type thing in the spirit of, of House and Powers. And I'm really, really curious if they can pull it off. I'm really, really curious because I don't, just from these runs, see it. I don't see that creative potential, um, but I hope it's there. Like, I, I want that to be good. I want that to be successful. Um, you know, I, I think the hook for this book is is a little uh, off-putting, you know, because it's like, oh, okay, Wolverine doing a bunch of time travel. It's like, okay, like, we had lifeline travel right there. Are we not tapping it? Are we? It's unclear. Um, some of the covers are teasing, teasing Wolverine with, like, phalanxy, you know, techno-organic stuff going on. So if we're going to tap into that, okay, this gets a heck of a lot more interesting. Like, it just, it needs to be big and bold and weird and and not play it safe and not do the same kind of 
Wolverine v. Sabretooth, you know, saving Silver Fox romance type stuff that we've seen a billion times before in, in enjoyable Wolverine comics of the past. Um, so I, I hope that, it, again, like setting, hey, we're going to do a house, and powers, a house and Powers for Wolverine, setting that as an expectation, setting that as a baseline, no, <laughs> it's not going to touch it. Uh, don't expect that it will, but setting really, really fun, good Wolverine event. Sure. Like what's, what are the latest examples of that specifically? You know, like death of Wolverine was, was reasonably well done, but not excellent. I love Wolverine and the X-Men, the series, the, the Jason Aaron written run. That's a big hit for me. Uh, Remeter's Uncanny X-Force is a great Wolverine book. Um, obviously there's more characters involved. And then you go back to like, what, like old man Logan in the two thousands is obviously an event type thing. Um, a big status, a very memorable book that a lot of people love. So, you know, I, I, if it can, if it can measure up to those types of books, um, I'll be happy. I'll be happy. If it can do something on the level of, Hey, you like old man Logan, check out this wild Wolverine time travel story. I will be happy. Um, so hopefully we can get there, but but obviously that's a, a 2022 thing that we'll figure out. Um, all right, does anyone have major questions before I go into what I expect Jonathan Hickman will be doing for Marvel uh, after Inferno's done? And actually, before I get into that, you know, there is something I wanna, I wanna touch on in terms of like Emma's leadership, because it really seems like, okay, in Inferno, um, Magneto, Professor X, and Moira, they bring Emma in on the existence of Moira. So apparently she didn't know, which I'd been theorizing. Like, it seems like she knows. She didn't know. Um, or at least she plays like she didn't know. Um, she's kind of mad at them. She's like, why are we hiding this? Which, yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. So if we're setting the stage for Emma being a leader or one of the key leaders of Krakoa, that's kind of been done. Um, that's kind of the utopia era, you know? Like that is, like it was Emma and Scott together in a relationship, were very much the heads of the X-Men on the island nation of Utopia in the build through Avengers vs. X-Men when they get their diversified Phoenix powers. You know, like that has been done with Emma as a major, major leader of an X-Men island nation, uh, or yeah, of an island nation. So to me, it's like, okay, if we're going to go that direction, cool, cool, cool. What are we doing differently? What are we doing differently that, that really sells like why Emma can be the leader this time um, in a way that is different, in a way that is compelling. And I, I think there's a few hints maybe in this second issue about what that could be, um, the first of which just being like this mystery box that she's looking to secure. I feel like what's inside that box and what it means for Emma is going to really tell us how her leadership, how her presence among mutants can change this go around, you know? Um, because I think, it, not that things can't be repeated, like history is repeated all the time, that can be a point of a story even. Um, Magneto is is a very powerful person on this island nation, and obviously that he's done that before, right? It's kind of his thing. So it's not like those types of beats can't be repeated and have an effective story. I'm just really curious with Emma especially in particular, like what, what can be different here that makes this more compelling? So, all right. So let's... Um, Here's a question. Would you want to see a Quiet Council series? I would have a while ago. I don't know that I do anymore. Um, I, w I definitely would have. 
throughout the dawn and the rain. I think that would have been great. I think this sort of tapping into the Krakoan politics of it all is a big part of what I and, and many have enjoyed about the Hickman X-Men experience, you know? Um, so I think that could have been a lot of fun. Now I'm less sold on it as things change. And again, too, like, I don't know that coming out of this, like, are we even going to have the same kind of quiet council, you know, post Inferno? Um, I, I think the broad question is like, whatever, whatever mutant nation looks like after Inferno, there's going to be some sort of leadership and some sort of focus on those characters. I think a book that really centers on the planning, you know, kind of, kind of like, like a, a Bendis or Hickman Illuminati, um, or, or just something that focuses in on this version of the Quiet Council, like something that really focuses in on the influential political leaders of these communities, I actually do think would be a super, super value to, to this X-Men line. Because, you know, the thing about Krakoa, or one of the big things about Krakoa that is so compelling is like, it's an act of nation building. And I think one of the problems with, with the dawn and through the rain is the elements of nation building that we get or have gotten are, are fairly limited. You know, like there's, there's a lot about Krakoan society that just absolutely has not been touched and has been taken for granted. So I think if you really looked at like an on the ground leadership, what are we doing? What are we planning kind of book? Um, that actually feels like a real big gap. So having one moving forward, I think it makes sense. Um, and I think too, like, you know, I, I could see a lot of, I could see the negative reaction to this being like, um, you know, like it's just people sitting at a table talking, uh, which is a lot of these scenes. But, you know, it, again, like you think about boardroom conversations and securing votes and, and the ways you can play up the tension and the drama of interpersonal relationships and power struggles in a political transaction. I mean, think of Game of Thrones. That's a huge, huge element that makes Game of Thrones popular. Um, the West Wing is obviously a popular series. Veep even, obviously, which is much funnier than anything in the X-Men line. Um, and then, you know, something like Succession, like I mentioned, like there's all sorts of entertainment that could, yes, it could be 10, you know, big important people sitting around a table, but it's not that. And they find ways to up the stakes dramatically and emotionally. And I, a Quiet Council book could absolutely do that. You know, it doesn't literally need to be about Quiet Council meetings. It's about those characters and it's about the dynamics between them. Um, that was part of what I liked about Marauders initially was all the, the Hellfire um, suite back and forth which has been like completely dropped. Like we, like what is Shinobi Shaw doing? Like when is the last time we saw Shinobi, right? Like Marauders has not touched that beat in, in several hot minutes. Um, but okay. So good question. I, I think that would be interesting. Uh, I don't know that it's the right time for it anymore. Okay. So what else do we got? Could Emma see a potential for the precogs moving forward? Yeah. I mean, I think this was, this was kind of my theory originally was that Emma would join with Mystique and Destiny out of, um, you know, a desire to move away from the Professor and Magneto's, you know, sort of, sort of ham-fisted, pragmatic direction, um, because there could be value in seeing the future. So, yeah, I think absolutely. Um, I think that's, you know, it, Emma now knowing Myra's lifelines and knowing this information is available, she's not just going to sit on that and say, I'm not doing anything with it. Right. And, and for Emma too, she hasn't been, I guess she'll have seen Moira's lifelines cause she read her mind, but like she hasn't been indoctrinated in Moira's version of 
and we have to kill destiny because of it, you know? So like, she might be the, the one to say, Hey, destiny Murray, sit down in a room and let's talk. How can we use both of you to figure out what's best for mutant kind? And then, you know, actually find like a real long-term solution for the, the survival of mutant kind. She could be that player. I sort of an intermediary, um, who, who brings both visions together, which I think could be interesting as well. So, all right. Why can't destiny see the future? Good question. We don't know, obviously, right? Like, so that's the conversation between Mystique and Destiny. Um, that Krakow over here is, is Destiny saying, when I look into the future, you know, I just see a, a big hole, basically. Now, I, I do wonder, I think this was a little, I, I kind of misread this. Um, and I, I think it was kind of written in such a way too that can easily be misread. Like the implication was like Destiny didn't have powers. Because the way she said it is like, if I look into the future, I don't see anything, which is like, okay, that's your whole power, right? Are all your precognitive abilities gone? But then when she's in the quiet council meeting, you know, Destiny has a great one-liner to, to, you know, Chuck Daddy, which is, you know, do you want me to tell you how this vote's going to go, right? Which is which is her precognability. So I, I'm now interpreting what she said to Mystique to actually be her saying, I can't see the end. I can't see the long, you know, end game of the future. There's just this hole. And if there's a hole there... That implies one of a few answers. Um, I think one is uh, Moira resets the lifeline, I want to say. So, like, like there's a hole there because Moira either resets the lifeline or she doesn't, <laughs> right? One of the two. Um, and then, which isn't a good answer, I know. But then the other possibility for a hole there is Ascension. Is the powers of 10, Phalanx, Homo Novisima, Ascension to a dominion which was talked about by Homo Nivisima as this thing outside of Mora's lifelines. Uh, very metaphysical, very difficult to, to conceptualize, but essentially it was like, we will live outside of your resurrected lifelines if we ascend in this way to dominion status. We will no longer be subject to the whims of Moira's lifelines. If that happens, if that is Moira's ultimate plan, for herself or for mutant kind, maybe Destiny would not be able to see that because it was no longer part of the same sort of timeline. It was no longer part of the same sort of lifeline structure. I, that was where my head went, um, connecting back to those Powers of X uh, comic, or yeah, those Powers of X comics. But like, we don't know for sure. Um, but that's, you know, that is the big question that they are trying to answer, which I think, I think that is the same question. Why can't Destiny see into the future? That is the same question as what is Moira planning? You know, and that answer is for sure going to come, I'm saying here, fingers crossed, over the next couple issues. Because if it doesn't, I'm going to riot. All right. So these are good questions. Thanks for bringing them in. Um, the The final thing I, I had on the, the docket here was what's Hickman doing after after um, X-Men? And we've talked about this a fair amount. You know, we've, I've had guesses out there. I may have even guessed this before. But so I've been reading um, a little more DC Black Label lately. Uh, I read Catwoman Lonely City, which is awesome. Go to your LCS and, and get a copy. Cliff Chang uh, wrote, drew, colored, lettered, everything. Um, Cliff's been the artist on uh, Paper Girls, on, on uh, the Wonder Woman run, New 52 with Brian Azzarello. And uh, I had the chance to interview Cliff um, just this past week. It was great. Great conversation. That'll be going up on the Comic Girl podcast. But uh, in reading Catwoman Lonely City, I was reminded yet again, as I am every time I pick up a DC Black Label book, that like 
One, it's fun to have stuff out of continuity that are just creators trying to do their best thing. I really enjoy the European album format. They're these big, oversized comics. Um, they're, you know, like, you know, they just feel weighty. They feel momentous in a way that, you know, your standard floppy does not. Um, this is a gap for Marvel. This is a gap for Marvel Comics. And if there's one thing Marvel cannot stand, it is DC doing anything they are not doing and doing it well. It doesn't matter if Marvel's beating DC, which they always are <laughs> in terms of sales. It matters that DC's doing it and they are not, then they want to chase it. I am surprised it has taken this long, uh, but Marvel has not chased Black Label. Not really. Um, to date, they have always, always been behind DC on the collected collected edition, um, kind of those evergreen type graphic novel uh, selections, right? Because DC's had Vertigo and it has Watchmen and it, it's got the, the better selection. Um, Marvel's never, that's never been their forte. They've never been as good at that. Um, I think they want Hickman to launch Marvel Black Label. I'm jokingly calling this Marvel Black Monday Murders Label. I'm sure it will have a better name than that. Uh, but I think that's what Hickman's going to launch. I think that's going to be his next big thing is like, here's the thing. He can then write out of continuity Marvel graphic novels that are intended to be excellent and evergreen, which is kind of what House and Powers was. That's kind of what House and Powers was. It just happens to be part of an ongoing. And we could debate that, you know, what would have been better? right? It's a debate. Um, I'm, I'm still always going to ultimately prefer something tied to the ongoings, but I hear it. You know, I hear it. Um, he can he can write that. He can have books in that line. And then also, also, he can curate it, you know? Because that's the thing about the X-Men line is like Hickman was playing, like I said, a million times now, he was the player coach. You know, he was bringing in writers that he thought was talented. He was coaching them. He was guiding them. He can play that role too, sort of that editorial side of things with the Black Label, where it's like this, okay, this is creators of vision doing a cool thing, um, doing their own cool thing, but all sort of curated and supported by a creator that has such tremendous goodwill and such a giant, giant fan base um, in Jonathan Hickman. So that is my new prediction for what Hickman's next big Marvel thing will be. Um, it's going to be Marvel's Black Label. I, I feel really good about this one. Um, you know, I've, and every time I mention this, you know, everybody jumps in with like, okay, uh, uh, you know, he's writing Doctor Strange, he's writing Inhumans, he's writing Eternals, all of which are, like, funny answers. I mean, Doctor Strange is is the leader of that bunch, for sure. Um, I don't... I, it could be. It, of course it could be, right? He could go on and he could just revamp another series. That, to me, though, is, like, I actually think that's a missed opportunity for Marvel and for Hickman if they do that. Like, if he just relaunches Doctor Strange, right? Um that's just Marvel Comics as usual type stuff. And it might lead to really good comics. Cool. I'll read them. I'll, I'll be excited to see what happens. But that is not going to transform their business and adapt it to a shifting ecosystem of how comics are sold and consumed. And that, to me, would be not taking advantage of, of the market and of the creator you have you know, under contract here to do big things. You talked about, like, you know, it's not really my job at Marvel. It's not really in my contract to just write like an ongoing X-Men. Like that was the vibe I got from the interview he did when he announced he was done. It was basically like, it's not my gig at Marvel to just write like a regular X-Men series. You know, it was kind of how he said it. Um, if it's not that, then why would it be 20 issues of Doctor Strange? Why would that be any different? You know what I mean? Like, unless he's just gonna go property by property, hox pox everything, do 12 issues to relaunch a vision for each character. Um, but, it, but at that point, it's like, well, why don't you just why don't you just write good graphic novels <laughs> and sell those as evergreen things too? Um, instead of instead of leading to the disappointment 
of you then bailing on it. I'm seeing somebody reference here, you know, Chip Zdarsky's life story kind of doing a similar thing. It is, yeah. I mean, I think Marvel's kind of got Chip on a on a track for doing like a what if line with with Spider-Man life story, Spider's um Spider Shadow, which has been pretty good um of like actual collected edition good solid graphic novel type what ifs instead of just these weird crazy one-offs that that what if has been historically um i think you know that was dc's thing for for a few hot minutes was like hey we're just going to give every creator we value their own imprint right so you had black label launch everybody kind of got a book there that wanted one um then you had jeff johns announced he's doing killing whatever it was uh, which, as far as I know, is is killed. It is dead in the water, which, like, okay. Um, what were the other... I mean, they had DC Inc., they had DC Zoom, you know, the Young Reader stuff, which is still happening, but it's called other stuff now. Point being, like, they had all these different imprints going. I think too much of that gets way too confusing. It becomes like an HBO Now, HBO Go, HBO regular situation where consumers are just like, what is, what is what? Like, just what is good? Um, but if Marvel... If they literally confined it to... And I, I think, like, maybe the Zdarsky wing of things which is like, you know, visions for what if books, you could just ladder that up into Marvel Black Monday Murders label. Like it can just be a part of that line because I think it's going to fit tonally with with what is potentially happening there as well. So, all right, that's my pitch for what I think should happen, what I think Marvel and Hickman should do. Obviously, we will see um, whether or not that actually uh, plays out. Um, I'm seeing a, a couple final questions here. What about Hickman's Substack deal? Does he really have a future with Marvel? I mean, every, everything he said is that, yeah, like he's, he can do both, you know, is basically, basically how he's talked about it. I mean, if at any, like, like he has some sort of contract with Marvel, who knows how binding, right? I don't think he's shackled into this, um, but he seems to enjoy it. it. It leads to a lot of press and easy, easy press for him, you know, um, I can see the upside. He gets to do fun stuff that gets a really wide audience. It, as a creator, he probably doesn't need it. But he also stepped away from Marvel, you know, from 2016 to 2019. So, like, he knows at this point he's had the experience of of being like, what is the advantage of being there? What is the advantage of not? And I think at this point, you know, I would imagine he has the creative freedom where it's like, it's fun to be there. Um, maybe it's not. You're right. Like, when it's not, he'll leave. And then he'll do his his three moon, three worlds thing, um, which is off to a slow start. But, uh, but you know, it's interesting. He's, he's experimenting and, and clearly having fun on his end, experimenting with what that can be. Um, so yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, I, I think, you know, I'm seeing a, yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm seeing a note here about like, oh, like black label, it would, it wouldn't work because they need like better art. Like, yeah, like <laughs> you hire really good artists. Like Mar Marvel does not have a, um, a, a talent, uh, uh, networking problem. <laughs> you know, if they see work they like, they can, they can, they can write up the terms. Uh, they just have to decide to do it, um, and invest in it. And obviously like the black label book, you know, it's black label book, like DC black label is not like a lock that that book's going to rule. There are plenty of those where I've been pretty checked out pretty quickly. Um, but then there are some that are incredible. Like I said, I love Catwoman Lonely City. I love what's going on there. Um, you know, and then, and, and it's kind of a, you know, it's a mixed bag of like, what even is black label, right? Cause you have all the Tom King written minis which are which vary in quality you know but they all look amazing like like works with the best artists in the biz um so like i have zero zero concerns there you know yeah i mean i'm seeing laraz promo come up here in the chat like yeah get hickman and laraz back together pepe laraz um for you know some some out of continuity dr strange thing like yeah like he's talked about doing stuff with chris pachalo like 
do a, a Doctor Strange graphic novel. Cool. Great. Awesome. I'm checking it out. Like, who's not, you know? And so I, I just think there's so much, so much opportunity there. And yeah, like, there's so many good artists at, at Marvel and elsewhere that I have no, no fear they could. And like, that's the thing with the Black Label type thing is like, you can give them more time for prestige format. It's printed on higher quality material. Um, it's going to be fine. It, that, that part's not going to be the problem. I don't anticipate. Uh, real real quick, I'm seeing here, thoughts on the return of Ecstatics. Love Ecstatics. Love Ecstatics. If you're not familiar, go to your Marvel Unlimited account. If you don't have one, get one. And go to the early 2000s. Peter Milligan written, Mike Allred, um, arted, <laughs> and Laura Allred colored. Ecstatics. It starts out as X-Force. I want to say it's X-Force, ooh, number 116, maybe? Early 2000s. And, uh, and then it, I'm going to, here's the thing. I'm going to go, X-Force 116 to 129, and then it rebrands as X-Statics. That's the guess off the top of my head. That could be way off, but you'll know when you see it. It's the Mike Allred art, um, and, and it is a great, great run. It is one of my favorite X-Books of all time, even though it is very much outside of the traditional X-Men continuity. Um, I'm glad they're coming back. They, they did a one-shot not too long ago that I wasn't over the moon about, um, and it kind of just felt like a, a, a nostalgia fest, you know, it, where it was like, okay, like we had this thing and it was great, but do we need any more of it? They're coming back with the excellent in February, 2022. Um, uh, the promo email made it sound like it was just a one shot. I don't know. I couldn't tell. Like, I, I kind of hope it's more than that. Um, but you know, we'll see. We'll see. I hope it's more. I hope, it, I hope we at least get like five issues of Milligan and Allred doing an excellent thing. I mean, it's, it, if it connects to like the Krakoa era in fun ways, that would be so thrilling. I would love that if they would play with parodying and satiring and and really digging into the meat of what's going on in Krakoa. Um, but Milligan and Allred are like, you know, legendary. They can do whatever they want and will. <laughs> so we will see. I'm seeing Dark Duke pop up in the comments here. The promo image does include a dark counter to uh, dupe. Do not Google Dark Dupe. I've seen this, uh, I've seen people make this mistake a handful of times. That is just my naming for good old dupe. Um, but yes, there are, there is a dark dupe. So that will be exciting. And seriously, if you missed out on Ecstatics, you missed out on some of the best Marvel comics of the early 2000s. They're absolutely some of my favorites. Um, not, not your, uh, not your traditional X-Men comics. So don't go in expecting that. But the fact that it started out as X-Force is hilarious. Like, it doesn't make any sense, <laughs> but it's very enjoyable. So, all right. Thanks, everybody, for listening. This has been a blast. As always, I really appreciate all of you joining live. Um, and, you know, I'll be back next week uh, with, with you know, more, more X-Men talk. Kraken Krakoa 4 Inferno number 2 coming as soon as I have time to record. So thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, you can find my stuff over at comicbookgirl.com. You can find and uh, you can go on over to patreon.com. So thanks everybody for listening. Peace.